looking today at 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8 is where we're going to be today. Uh, it's interesting that this passage we come to today just happens to land on Father's Day. For today's passage is a clear reminder about how important godly convictions are and how easily those convictions can be compromised, leading a nation, a church, a family, or individuals into great confusion. And while today's passage is literally relevant to all of us, for as we'll talk about, all of us must guard our convictions against compromise. For our fathers here, though, for you especially, this passage has some powerful insights and implications. As we know from Scripture, uh, God has ordained you, fathers, to be the leaders of your homes. He's ordained you, fathers, to be the spiritual leader for your family, for your church, for your community. And the role of godly men, of godly fathers, in the lives of families and churches and nations is crucial for social stability and prosperity. So again, ladies, mothers, singles, young people, please don't tune out today because there's stuff in here for you too, I guarantee it. But to the men here, to the fathers here today, I'd like to ask you to pay a special attention to this word. We need you, fathers, to hear this word today. Now here's the game plan. As we begin this morning, I'd like for us to read the story together. What does 1 Samuel chapter 8 have to say? And now, after we read the passage, I'd like to come back and make some observations about the story. What's, what's going on here? And then finally, I'm going to come back and draw out, draw out some applications for us. What might God be saying to us today through the words here in 1 Samuel chapter 8? That's the plan. Sound all right? All right, good. Well, let's begin by reading together from 1 Samuel chapter 8. I'm going to read. Okay, I'll do the reading. You guys follow along in your Bibles or on the screen behind me. Let's take a look at 1 Samuel chapter 8. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. The names of his son, uh, firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second was Abijah, and they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, You are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. But when they said, Give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king, as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods. So they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what a king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons and make them serve with his chariots and horses, and they will run in front of his chariots. 
Some he will assign to be commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties. And others to plow his ground and to reap his harvest. And still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain and your vintage and give it to his officials and attendants, your men servants and maid servants and the best of your cattle and donkeys. He will take for his own use. He will take a tenth of your flocks uh, for his own use, and you yourselves will become his slaves." When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with the king to lead us and to go out before us and fight our battles. When Samuel heard all that the people said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them. And give them a king. Well, friends, a lot could be said about this passage here this morning. But I'd like to highlight for us today a few key pieces here. A few observations. First observation I'd like to make from this passage is this. Israel's conviction had turned to compromise. Israel's conviction had turned to compromise. To fully understand what I'm getting at here, we need to rewind the story a bit. Back to about 20 or 30 years prior to the events here in chapter 8. If you recall from recent weeks in our series on 1 Samuel, Israel and the Philistines have been playing Raiders of the Lost Ark. Israel had misused the Ark of the Covenant falsely believing that they could manipulate God into a military victory. As a result of this sin, God allowed the Philistines to defeat Israel and capture the Ark of the Covenant. Well, you may remember that that didn't turn out too well for the Philistines as God judged them for stealing the Ark by infecting them with a plague of rats and tumors. I mean, talk about a bad day, right? I mean, rats and tumors. In fact, it was more than a bad day. The Bible says it lasted seven months until finally the Philistines relented and returned the Ark of the Covenant to Israel. And in chapter 7 last week, we saw Israel repent of their sins and return to their conviction that God alone was their king. God alone was their deliverer and the rightful Lord over their nation. And once again, God rewards Israel for their faithfulness, for their conviction, by leading them to victory over the Philistines. Well, now we come to our passage for today, 1 Samuel chapter 8. And about 30 years has passed since Israel's return to their conviction that God alone is their Lord and Savior. And here in chapter 8, we find that the spiritual state of the nation has changed dramatically. Israel's conviction of 30 years ago has now turned to compromise. And as we read in verses 5 and 20, Israel has traded the conviction that God alone is their Lord and Savior for a compromise, believing that they must have an earthly king to lead them, a king so they can be like all the other nations around them. Their conviction has turned to compromise. And as Samuel warns, 
And as we'll talk about in a few minutes, their compromise will lead to serious confusion. Now, friends, if you haven't caught on yet at this point in our journey through 1 Samuel, I'm going to let you in on a little secret this morning. And honestly, I don't know how to say this in a more pastoral way, so I'm just going to tell it like it is. Friends, Israel here is seriously messed up. I mean, this nation, this people have a serious problem. I mean, they're sin junkies. We see this over and over again. The next, uh, Israel chasing after false gods, giving up their convictions of the Lord being their savior, their provider for false gods, for compromises. They haven't learned a thing in over 400 years since God brought them out of slavery in Egypt. We find them caught in this cycle, this chronic cycle of conviction, compromise, and confusion. They have some serious problems. And we see this not only in 1 Samuel, but all throughout the Old Testament's history of Israel. Time and time again, one generation begins with a conviction that God alone is their Lord and Savior. The next generation comes along and compromises that conviction, doubting the Lord, chasing after false gods, and following their own desires. And inevitably, and we see this all throughout the history of Israel, the third generation ends up paying for this compromise by living in moral and spiritual confusion and often ending up as slaves to the world around them. Conviction, compromise, and confusion. And friends, I want you to understand something that is deadly serious. Deadly serious. In every single case where we find the nation of Israel compromising their convictions, leading to moral and spiritual confusion, this compromise happens within a generation in a generation. The direction and fate of an entire nation can hinge on the choices of a single generation. Just one. Let me ask you, friends, do you believe that your life matters today? Do you believe that the choices you make in your life matter? Fathers here, do you believe that the convictions and legacy you leave your children matters? Friends, you better believe it matters. A single generation is all it takes to alter the history of a nation, a church, a family. Your convictions matter, friends. And no conviction is more important than the question of who is the Lord of your life today? Who is the Lord of your family today? Who is the Lord of our nation today? And this leads me to observation number two. Israel's compromise is rooted in the age-old lie. Did God really say? The age-old lie. Did God really say? You know, friends, Satan is still using the same playbook he's had since the beginning. And while you think that this would be stupid on his part, the reality is we keep falling for it. We keep falling for the age-old lie. Take a look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. 
Satan in the Garden of Eden says to Adam and Eve, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? You see, Satan's primary tactic has always been to get us to question God and his will for our lives. And ultimately, it's a matter of trust, a question of trust. Who will you trust? Will you trust in the Lord and his will for your life, or will you trust in what seems best in your own eyes? And here in 1 Samuel chapter 8, we see the same age-old lie being used against Israel. Did God really say he would provide for you? Did God really say he would protect you? Did God really say you didn't need any other king but him? And Israel's compromise is rooted in this lie, this question of trust. And so when Israel asks for a king, this is more than an issue of who's going to lead them. This is a reflection of the hearts of the people. And their hearts, their hearts have strayed from their conviction that God is their king in their provider. They've succumbed to the oldest lie in the book. The Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, they have exchanged the truth of God for a lie. They exchanged the truth of God for a lie. God says to Israel, trust me. And Israel says to God, what do you know? And again, this is so amazing because they should know better. They should know better. They've been down this road before. Yet they choose to compromise their conviction and instead believe the lie that they know better than God. And this leads me to observation number three this morning. Israel has no idea what they're asking for and the confusion that they're in for. They have no idea, totally clueless about what they're asking for. Now, friends, you need to understand something about what's going on here in chapter 8. God was not opposed to Israel having a king. That's not the issue here. In fact, God had planned for Israel to have kings long before they even existed as a nation. Look at Genesis chapter 17, verse 6. God said to Abraham, I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you, and kings will come from you. And in passages like Genesis 49.10 and Numbers 24.17-19, God tells Israel that he would use a royal line of kings from the tribe of Judah from which the Messiah would come. You see, God was not opposed to the idea of Israel having a king. The problem here in chapter 8, though, was the kind of king Israel was now demanding. They wanted a king like the nations around them. And this was a far cry from what God wanted for them in their future king. You know, who were the kings of the nations around them? What were they asking for? Old Testament scholar Bill Arnold has noted the nature of the kings in the land of Canaan during the time of Samuel. He says this, let me quote, he says, The portrait of kingship that Samuel paints appears to be an authentic description of the feudal Canaanite political structure as it existed prior to and during the time of Samuel. He objects that having a king like all the other nations is not what Yahweh has in mind. Such an unchecked human institution will become militaristic 
conscript Israelite men, even women, into military service, confiscate property, and lead ultimately to enslavement. The theme words of Samuel's warning about kingship are take and serve. Ancient Near Eastern kingship is parasitic rather than giving. Nothing seems beyond the grasp of the king, whether children, personal property, or one's freedom. Kings take and take, and when everything is gone, they force you to serve. The final indignation, you yourselves will become his slaves, Samuel says in verse 17. You see, the type of king Israel is demanding in chapter 8, a king like all the other nations, is totally at odds with the history and faith of Israel, a people who had been led and ruled by God himself. And God had never let Israel down. In over 400 years, not once had God ever let Israel down. And yet Israel wants a king. Not on God's terms, but on their terms. So that they can be like all the other nations. The very same nations that God had commanded them to be set apart from. You know, it's interesting when you study the history of Israel from this point forward, how this decision, how this compromise of demanding an earthly king on their terms by a single generation, how this compromise plunges Israel into a history, into generations of moral and spiritual confusion. As we'll see in the coming weeks, God allows Israel to have their king. In fact, Israel ended up having a total of 43 kings. And what did they get out of it? A divided kingdom, numerous wars, two epic periods of conquest and slavery at the hands of the Babylonian and Assyrian empires. Every single thing Samuel warns them about here in chapter 8 comes true. And of all of Israel's 43 kings, friends, you know something? Only a handful could be considered godly during their rule. Conviction, compromise, and confusion. Let's bring this home now this morning. What do we do with this passage? How can we apply the lessons of this passage to our own lives? Let me suggest three points for you to consider here this morning. Three points of application. Application number one. Friends, let me encourage you to base your convictions on God's truth. Base your convictions on God's truth. See, friends, here's the fact. God knows better than you. Right? God knows better than you. Regardless of what you'd like to think about yourself, it's true. God knows better than you. So, friends, base your convictions upon His truth. It's that simple. The fact of the matter is this. When you choose to follow God and His will for your life, your life will generally go better for you. But when you choose to disregard God's guidance and instead do what is best in your own eyes, friends, don't be surprised when things don't work out so well. Am I right? I mean, honestly, we could be here all day telling stories about the consequences, the difference between following God and His will for our lives and trusting in our own judgment, our own wisdom, or 
what we think is best. We've all been there. My friend Sean McDowell tells a story in one of his books about a friend of his named Greg. One dark evening, when Greg knew his neighbors were out of town, he and his girlfriend snuck behind their house and scaled the fence they had erected around their backyard swimming pool. Greg threw off his shoes, climbed the ladder to the diving board, and while his girlfriend was still taking off her shoes and socks, he leapt off the end of the diving board. He heard his girlfriend scream just before he lost consciousness. You see, the pool held only a few feet of water. Greg's dive ended with a shallow splat of water and a sickening crunch of bones. Greg's late-night dive paralyzed him from the neck down for the rest of his life. See, Greg had ignored the fence that his neighbors had erected around the pool. He assumed it was only there to keep him and his girlfriend from having fun, when in reality, it was meant for his own protection. And his disregard of that boundary cost him dear. You know, friends, just like Greg, when we disregard God's guidance for our lives, when we ignore the boundaries that God has erected for our protection, the cost can be devastating. But when we trust Him, when we follow His will for our lives, it is then that we will experience what Jesus calls in John chapter 10, verse 10, life, and life to the full. See, life is found in following God's guidance, His will for our lives. But friends, we need to base our convictions upon God's truth. This is why Solomon, who was the son of David, one of the godly kings of Israel. Solomon, who authored Proverbs, in Proverbs 3, verses 5 through 6, Solomon, in his wisdom, said, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways, in everything you do, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. See, Solomon understood what I think all of us know intuitively, that God is smarter than we are, right? And Solomon says, trust in the Lord with all your heart. In everything you do, in all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. He will show you the way that leads to life and life to the full. But when we trust in our own wisdom, when we trust in what we think is best in our own eyes, friends, that so often leads to devastating consequences. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. This leads me to application number two. Let me encourage you, friends, to cultivate your convictions. Cultivate your convictions. You know, friends, people do not simply wake up one morning and decide, you know, today seems like a good day to compromise my convictions. It doesn't happen like that, does it? Compromise happens gradually when convictions are not cultivated and cared for. William Booth, the founder of the Salvation Army, he used to say to his new recruits, I want you to always bear in mind that it is the nature of a fire to go out. He said it is the nature of a fire to go out. You must keep it stirred and fed and the ashes removed. See, friends, just like that fire must be tended, so so we too must tend to our convictions if we want to protect ourselves from compromise. 
How do we do this? How do we cultivate our convictions? Friends, we do this by spending time in God's Word. God's Word, which is the source of God's revealed truth for us. We do this, we cultivate our convictions by spending time in prayer. Prayer, again, which is simply having a conversation with our Father in Heaven. Our Papa, our Daddy, as Jesus said. Do you spend regular time in prayer and conversation with your Father in Heaven? We cultivate our convictions by participating in the life of the church, which is the family of God, here to support us, here to encourage us, here to build us up. Friends, why do you think we are always encouraging you to participate in the life of the church, to get involved in our adult Bible fellowships, to get involved in small groups or Bible studies? We don't do this simply because we want a lot of numbers involved. We do this because we know that this is one of the patterns that God has set for us to experience life and life to the full. Participation in the family of God, the body of Christ. We cultivate our convictions by serving the Lord, by looking for opportunities, for ways that we can bring glory and honor to Him through our lives, through our skills, through our talents, through our treasures. Cultivate those convictions. Friends, cultivate your convictions. Make that a priority of your life. And you will find that your fire for the Lord will burn bright. And you'll find that compromise won't be such an issue for you. You know, it's interesting, in my 11 years now as a pastor, I've had many opportunities to counsel many people. And I've counseled people through some very serious issues. Marital infidelity, uh, sexual addiction, drugs, and alcohol, pornography, very serious things where people have walked down that road of compromise for a long, long time. And it never ceases to amaze me the power of God's grace and the redemptive change that's possible in a person's life. When people repent of their sins, confess their sins before the Lord and commit to serving Him, and they begin to work at cultivating those godly convictions in their lives. And friends, I've seen miracles take place. You see, as people cultivate these godly convictions by spending time in His Word, by spending time in prayer, by participating in the body of Christ, by serving the Lord, as they cultivate those godly convictions, those things that they used to struggle with in compromise suddenly don't seem so desirable anymore. Cultivate your convictions, and compromise won't be such an issue for you. And finally today, friends, application number three. Commit yourselves to leaving a godly legacy. Commit yourselves to leaving a godly legacy. Now hear me here, friends, and make no mistake about it. Okay? All of us here this morning, every single one of us here this morning, are building a legacy. Grandparents, you are building a legacy. Parents, you are are building a legacy. Singles and young people, even you, are building a legacy amongst your friends, teammates, co-workers. Every single one of us here today are building a legacy. The question, though, is this. What kind of legacy will you build? What kind of legacy will you build? Will you build a legacy, a godly legacy, one that honors God and glorifies God and points people to Jesus Christ? 
Or will you build a legacy of compromise? A life lived on your terms rather than God's. You know, I'm very thankful for the godly legacy that I inherited. I had two godly grandparents who loved the Lord and served Him faithfully. And they left a legacy of faith for our family. Much of who I am today is directly attributable to those godly men. My dad's father was a pastor for 60 years. And in him I saw a life of faithfulness. I saw a life of love for God and His Word. A love for serving in the church. And friends, when I considered going into ministry, there wasn't even a question in my mind about it because I had seen a model of someone who loved and experienced joy by serving in the body of Christ. He left a godly legacy for us. My mother's father was a businessman. He owned a hardware store. He owned a construction company up north of Green Bay, Wisconsin. And he was a man of God his entire life. And he used his business as a platform for serving the Lord and for sharing the gospel with everybody he encountered. He was a model of integrity, a model of faithfulness, a model of love. He was a man who knew God's word deeply and intimately. I remember being at his deathbed as he was dying of cancer, and one of the final things he said to me was, Jason, stay in the word. Stay in the word. See, he understood that our convictions are best rooted in God's revealed truth. And he lived that consistently every day of his life, and he left a godly legacy for our family. Friends, I'm so thankful for that legacy. We're all building a legacy. What kind of legacy will you leave? My friend Jeff Copeland sitting back here. Many of you know Jeff. He's involved in a lot of areas in our church. Jeff and I were doing a Bible study together this last year on what does it mean to be a man of God. One day Jeff confided in me. He said, you know, Jason, I come from a family that didn't make following the Lord a priority in our lives. You know, spiritual things, they were never even a reality for us. But he said, you know what, Jason, I'm going to change that. I'm going to change that. I'm going to be the first in my family to leave a godly legacy for my children. And I tell you what, friends, Jeff's family is going to be forever changed because of his decision to build a godly legacy. It only takes one generation. What legacy will you commit yourself to leaving? But friends, leaving a godly legacy requires intentionality. It means that every day we must choose. We must choose to honor the Lord with all of our lives. It means that we must guard our lives against compromise. And it means that we must proactively seek to sow the seeds of our convictions into the lives of our families and everyone else in our sphere of influence. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is found in Joshua chapter 24, verses 14 through 15. Joshua, who was the leader of Israel during this time, on his deathbed in his final words to the nation of Israel, he says this, now fear the Lord and serve Him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your forefathers worshipped beyond the river in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your forefathers served beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. 
Friends, choose this day who you will serve. Leaving a godly legacy is about intentionally choosing to commit your life to the Lord for the sake of the next generation. Friends, who will you serve? What kind of legacy will you leave? My prayer for all of us here today, my prayer for all of our fathers here today, is that just like Joshua, we too might say, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for your love for us, for your grace. Without your grace, Father, none of this would be possible. Heavenly Father, I just pray for all of us here today that we would build godly convictions into our lives. That our lives would be rooted in the truths of Scripture. That our lives would be rooted in prayer. That we would cultivate those convictions and participation in the body of Christ through serving you, through sharing our faith with others. Father, help us base our convictions on you and build those convictions stronger and stronger in all of us each and every day so that compromise isn't even an issue. Lord, I pray for all of us here, but I pray today on Father's Day especially for our fathers. The world needs godly men today more than ever before. We need men of conviction who will not compromise. Father, I pray that the men in this room this morning would be built up and strengthened and encouraged as men of conviction, as godly men who leave a legacy of faith for their families who forever alter the history of their families because they made a choice here on this day that me and my family will serve the Lord. Father, help us. Give us the strength we need in this world that is so full of compromise. Give us the conviction and strength we need to stand boldly for your truth. And Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for our dads. Bless each and every one of them today. In your precious name we pray. Thank you, dads. We appreciate all you do. And now let me just encourage you one last time. Be bold. All of us, be bold, but our fathers here especially, be bold and commit to leaving a legacy of faith. We'll pray blessings on you in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great day and a great week.